So I want to begin by asking you to think about what do churches or Christians fight about? You can probably think of plenty of things that Christians argue about and fight about. Uh, Churches, sometimes they can fight about things like the church building, whether to have pews or chairs in the building, about music, whether to have a guitar or not, about traditions that are in the church, like the flower committee that has existed for 50 years. Why would we ever get rid of the flower committee? All these kinds of church traditions, and then people get in, get in big fights about these kinds of things. Now, we all know that in the last two, uh, maybe up to three years now, there have been lots of fights in many churches over things like vaccines and masks and whether you should cancel church services or not, over how much uh, the church should talk about the political issues going on or how little to talk about those things. So there are lots of things, especially maybe in these last few years, that churches fight about. But relatively speaking, there seems to be little fighting over things that are essential to the gospel in comparison to all the things that churches fight about. There is very little of fighting about really important things, doing what Jude says in verse three of his letter, contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Christians contend about a lot of other things, but not always for the faith. And one example of this is what we are studying. It's the doctrine of Christ and who Christ is. Uh, Who Christ is, is essential to salvation. But you know, it's probably true, I think, that people would rather ask a pastor what he thinks about the COVID vaccine than to come up and ask a pastor what he thinks about the two natures of Jesus Christ. It seems that that issue would be more important to some people in deciding whether to attend a church. People aren't as interested, it seems, in making sure that a church can faithfully articulate who Christ is. I mean, just maybe you can say some general things like, sure, you believe he's God, you believe he's a man, that's good enough for me. But yet, when it comes to these other things, they they can do all the research, and they can ask you all these questions about, what do you think about this vaccine and this vaccine over here? They know everything. And yet, they aren't so interested in knowing the details about who Jesus is. Uh, A man named Stephen Wellam, he says... The evangelical church seems more willing to fight and divide over issues that are entailments of the gospel than to stand faithfully for truths central to the gospel, namely Christology. And he gives as evidence a poll you may have heard of called the State of Theology poll, which is done by Ligonier Ministries. And so every two years, I think, they come out with the State of Theology. What do people believe? And so uh, I looked that up this week, and uh, here are the two questions they asked Christians about Christ. And actually, they asked people who identify as evangelicals. So people who say they believe the Bible is completely true, 
they believe in the gospel of justification. So then they asked them other theology questions. So they asked uh, these people, uh, here's the, well, here's a statement that they, they gave them. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. So the statement is, Jesus is the greatest being created by God. Do you agree, disagree? Well, 40% strongly agreed that Jesus is created by God. That's what we talked about last week, the heresy of Arianism, that the Son of God was created. Uh, Then the, the next statement related to Christ was, Jesus is a great teacher, but he was not God. And 31% strongly agreed that Jesus was not God. So you go to the typical evangelical church, typical Bible-believing church, and if this survey is accurate, a third of the, the people in that church would agree that Jesus is not God. That's pretty shocking. Uh, Now, you could look at it on the positive side and say, well, 70% do agree and they understand that Jesus is God. Uh, But still, a third is a huge number. This is the essence of what Christianity is, right? This is the core of the gospel. And so it does seem that there are many churches focusing on many secondary issues and not focusing on core issues of the gospel and Christianity. And so that's one reason we're, gonna, we're taking these few weeks to talk about who Jesus is. So last week, remember, we talked about how the Son of God is fully God. He is equal with God, always existed in eternity from God, uh, from the Father. So we, we tried to explain how that works, that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Uh, Tony came up afterwards last week and he asked me to to mention this again and clarify this. Uh, So we're going to go back to that a little bit. You can blame Tony for that. Uh, So that word only begotten, especially in the Gospel of John, remember that um, the ESV that I have and I think most modern translations, they translated that as only, the only Son of God instead of translating it as only begotten. And the King James and New King James keep that translation as only begotten. Uh, yeah, only begotten. And basically the, the difference, it's not necessarily that the people who translate the ESV don't believe that Jesus the Son is begotten by the Father. They just don't think that that's what that word means. They don't think it should be translated as only begotten. Um, and so what they say that it, it means is something like one of a kind or unique. So the, the one of a kind son of the father was um, the one who came down. Um, so you may know some of these people like uh, D.A. Carson and Leon Morris and Andreas Kostenberger. They all wrote well-known commentaries on the Gospel of John, and they all say that it should be translated as unique or one of a kind. And I don't agree with that. Um, uh, It does seem that a better way to understand it is 
only begotten. And we can look at some examples in the Gospel of Luke. If you want to turn first to chapter 7, verse 12. I'm reading all these from the ESV, so they're going to translate it as just the word only. But you can see from the context, it's pretty obvious that only means a physically begotten. They are the only begotten child. So uh, Luke 7, verse 12, As Jesus drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So you think he's trying to make the point that this is a unique son, one-of-a-kind son among the family? No, he's trying to say he is the only son who came from his mother. So let's now look at chapter 8, verse 42. This is Luke, chapter 8, verse 42. Uh, This is Jairus. It says... He had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So again, what does that mean? Only, only begotten, the only, only one who has come from him. Um, not one of a kind. Uh, chapter 9, verse 38. Uh, verse 38, Luke 9 38. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. So, again, so this idea of translating as uh, one, one of a kind or, or a unique son is not really, doesn't really make sense in the context. Uh, it's a, talking about a physical begetting, procreation. So we take that to the Son of God, and like we said, it's not a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing, but the Son of God is the only begotten. So maybe that helps or clarifies or gives more context to what we were trying to talk about last week. So now, today, we're going to talk about the Incarnation. So now we have the Son of God, who is the very God of very God, true God of true God, And he assumes, he takes on a human nature. And the human nature is made up of body and a soul. A human body and a human soul. Now, again, it's it's important to understand this correctly because this is the essence of salvation. Our Savior needed to be truly God and truly man. And sometimes in the way that we think about it or we talk about it, You can either downplay that he's fully God, or you can downplay that he is fully man. And so we need both. We want to think about it the right way. How can he be both? So that's what we want to talk about today. We're going to start then with some definitions. We're going to talk about what is a person and what is a nature. And the hard part is, I can't show you a Bible verse where the Bible says, here's what a person is, and here's what a nature is. 
But what the Bible does teach us is that Jesus, the Son of God, is one person in two natures. So that is clear in the Bible. One person, two natures. So then, as uh, pastors and theologians over, over the years after Jesus rose from the dead, they had to try to explain that. Okay, so we see this in the Bible, but what does this mean? How does this work? So here's what a person is. The person is the one who acts. The one who acts. A-C-T-S. I can't say that word. Uh, so the person does the things. So if you think about your English class in school, there's the subject and the verb. Tom runs. Okay, so Tom is the person. Tom is the subject. Tom is the one doing the running. That's easy so far, right? <laughs> okay, but now we have the nature. The nature is what you are. So the person acts. Nature is what you are. So a human nature has a body and a soul. Uh, the human nature has a will, so it has a desires to do things. It has a mind, so it can think about things. It has emotions, so it feels things. Okay, so that's all a human nature. We could talk about the divine nature, God's nature, but we're not going to get into that. But for us, we are one person with one nature, and so you're always going to act according to your one nature. So whatever you feel like doing or whatever you choose to do, whatever you think about doing, that's the thing that you're going to do. Okay? So the person is the one who does the thing. The nature is the, the thing, what you are. Uh, so you're going to act according to your nature. But the Son of God, when he becomes a man... He is going to be one person who's going to act according to two natures. Not at the same time, but he's going to act according to two different natures. So he's going to have a divine will and a human will. You think about that in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see that. Jesus prays, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Does that mean that the Trinity is against itself? Is the Son of God against the Father? No. As the Son, in his divine nature, he wants the will of God. But in his human nature, he desires, a, he desires to not go to the cross, right? At that point. But he says, not my will. He chooses to submit the human will to the will of God, okay? So that's one example. You see two wills within um, the one person of Jesus. Okay, well, one place that we see this is in Philippians chapter 2. So we're, this is what we're going to focus on for today.
Let's read verses 5 through 11. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, or he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so he was, in verse 6, in the form of God. Uh, if you're thinking about that in a, in a physical sense, well, God is spirit. And so as the Son of God, eternally, he was spirit. He's the person of the Son. But it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So think of this grasping, uh, not as reaching out for something, but as holding on to something. So I have a a little baby, and you try to take things from him, he will grasp onto them if he wants them. So when something has tried to be taken from you, you grasp it. And so this is what it's saying about the Son of God. Uh, He did not consider this equality something to be held on to. So one person says, he translates it as, he did not think equality something to be used for his own advantage. He did not hold on to it to use it for his own advantage. And so he says, the issue is Jesus' attitude about his divine status. He did not take advantage of or exploit his full equality with God to excuse him from the task of becoming our Redeemer. So now what does it mean then that if he he had equality with God, does that mean he stopped being equal with God? Uh, What does it mean that he emptied himself in verse 7? Does anybody have a translation that says something different? Just raise your hand if it says something different from emptied himself. Because that's what mine said. Uh, Mine said something different. Um, So even the ESV changes. It's a really strange thing. So I have this old ESV here. And it says, he made himself nothing. Uh, But most translations, and even the the new ESV now, translates it as, he emptied himself. So, uh, some people think that they would say that Jesus, or the Son of God, emptied himself of some aspect of being God. And that's wrong. Um, but, you know, as I, as I brought up last week, the question, so how is it that Jesus doesn't know the day of his return? Well, those people would say because he emptied himself of uh, omniscience. 
God knows everything, but the Son of God emptied himself of that attribute of God. Or, obviously, Jesus dies, right? So how can God die? Well, they would say, uh, as the Son of God, he empties himself of that attribute of God. But here's the problem with that, is that the Bible is very clear that Jesus in the flesh is fully God. He doesn't give up anything. Uh, Turn over a few pages to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. If you want to go up to verse 13, that's where it mentions the, the Son of God. So that's who the, the passage is talking about. And then in verse 15, it says he's the image of God. Uh, but then in verse 19, uh, it says this. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So this is talking about Jesus as a man. And in the flesh, in his human nature, in the person of Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So somehow, when the Son of God takes on flesh, he does not empty himself of knowing everything. He does not empty himself of immortality. The divine nature doesn't change. Okay, so so we take the clear statement in Colossians. He doesn't give up anything about being God, his being as God. So what does he empty himself of? Well, it's interesting that Paul actually has no uh, direct reference in verse seven of Philippians two. It doesn't say he made himself or he sorry, he emptied himself of such and such. He doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us what he empties himself of, but he tells us what he does. What does he do? He takes the form of a servant. He is born in the likeness of men. And then verse 8, he is found in human form. So that's Paul's explanation of how the Son of God emptied himself. He emptied himself, not by giving up anything about being God, but by adding something. Emptying by addition. (laughs) By adding a human nature, a human body, and a human soul. Now you can see why that would be emptying himself, giving up something. He had all the glory why, why, why would you want to walk among us mere mortals when you can be exalted in the heavens? But the one who is exalted in the heavens decided to add human nature so that he would experience pain in his human nature. He would experience death in his human nature. We're going to talk about that more next week. But the Son of God, the person of the Son, adds a second nature 
so that now in this human nature he can suffer and die. So he did not exploit his equality with God for his own advantage, but he humbled himself by adding the human nature. Now, maybe a more uh, clear way to understand what it means to empty himself, uh, even though it is a Bible word, uh, but we can misunderstand that easily, is to use the word veiling. And so that's one way that a lot of people have uh, explained what, Jesus, what the Son of God does. He veils his divinity. You know the hymn, the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He veils his divinity in flesh. And that's a good explanation of it because when you have a veil, the thing behind the veil doesn't change, does it? It can be shining just as brightly, shining very brightly. But there's a veil that keeps the person from seeing the brightness. And so the human nature of Christ, the flesh of Christ, was the veil, not that lessened his godhood, his godness, any, but it just keeps us from seeing it as much as we could have if he was not in flesh. And that's when he first came to earth. Um, John Owen says he veiled himself. He shadowed himself. He hid his divine nature. He eclipsed the glory of his divine nature. Not completely. All things under heaven cannot veil or eclipse or hide the glory of the divine nature. So he couldn't completely hide everything. But he eclipsed and shadowed and hid and laid it aside as to himself and his interest in it. So for his own advantage, he's saying. Because by taking our nature upon him, men were so far from looking at him as God that they did not even look at him as a good man. And the reason was because they saw and knew him to be a man. He professed himself to be a man and was no less a man than any of themselves were. So you see, this is the veiling. as like when they say... Isn't this the carpenter's son? We grew up with this baby. I've known you since you were a little baby. How can you really be God? Well, it's not because anything about him lessened about being God. It's because by taking on flesh, he chose to identify himself and have people recognize him as a human being. So this is what Philippians chapter 2 teaches us. That's how we can explain the one person and the two natures. Now, remember, as we talked about last week, all of these things, they come about through history and people arguing about these things and heretics coming around. So we're going to talk about that. So the first one from last week was in the 300s AD. Then early 400s came along different heresies. First was this guy named Nestorius. So his heresy is called Nestorianism. And he said Christ is two persons. Two persons. So not two natures, but two persons. So two persons in one body. So essentially the body 
the physical body of Jesus is just like this shell and there are two people inside of it <laughs> and uh, they're making decisions and choices and acting through this one body. Uh, one person gave this analogy. He said, imagine a law firm composed of two partners, one of whom is never actually seen, but his influence is continually felt in all the firm's decisions. The visible partner is an analogy to the man Jesus, but the, the, the word, the, the son of God part, the divine part, is the one who stands behind important decisions in the man's life. Okay, so, uh, so it's, it's technically like they are working together, but you don't really see the God aspect of Jesus. That's what Nestorius says. You don't really see him, but he does influence decisions. Now that all sounds just kind of odd and, and doesn't really make much sense. Uh, it's the problem with all of that is that basically Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is a split personality. Uh, his his divinity and his humanity, they're just kind of always at odds with each other, and so you don't really have Jesus as true God or true man. They're just kind of the strange interaction of both. So that was one. And then on the other side, there came another heresy. Um, you don't have to learn this word, but it's monophysitism. Monophysite. And that means one nature. Uh, actually, so Coptic Orthodox Church is a monophysite church. And there's one 20 minutes down the street. Uh, Western Avenue. Actually, well, it's 10 minutes down the street. Uh, it's a Coptic Orthodox Church. So they believe that Jesus only has one nature. So Nestorius was saying Jesus is a split person. He has two persons inside of his body. And so these people, they're reacting and they say, no, 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 there's unity. There's one nature in Jesus. And so they thought it was like a chemical reaction. Uh, to get rust, you have water and iron. Get water on your iron, it starts turning into rust. It's a chemical reaction. It turns into something new. And so they said, well, you get the God part, the God nature. You get the human nature, put them together, and it reacts. It mutates, and there's one nature that's a mixture. So that's also a problem. That's a problem because then Jesus is not a man, and he's not a God. He's just some chemical reaction of both. And so that's why we are looking at what's called the Chalcedonian Creed, which is there uh, at the bottom of the handout. Uh, this council was called in the middle of the 400s to respond to both of those heresies and others. And so they give us this way of explaining one person, two natures. So I'm going to read it. It says, Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead, 
and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body. Uh, that means rational, like a rational soul, like a mind. So as a man, he had a rational mind and a body. Of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures. So here's where they're getting to what we've just talked about. This one person, the Son or the Lord, has two natures. Now, look what they say about the natures. Two natures without confusion. Okay, so they don't mix in any way. They're not confused together. Two natures without change. He doesn't diminish his godhood any, and he doesn't diminish his manhood any. Um, without division. So, like Nestorius was saying, he's not one half God and one half man, or, or God and man and one person. And without separation. That's also what Nestorius was doing. He was separating. So, uh, the natures are not separated. They're united in the person of Jesus. But they don't change and they don't mix. Okay? <laughs> um, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. Uh, you might have to go over that a few times and, and think about it, uh, but hopefully you can kind of see the, the basic point. The two natures are united in the person of Jesus, uh, but they do not change, they do not mix, and so they're truly God and truly man in his nature. Uh, one other thing I wanted to point out, I mentioned this at the beginning, but they define being a true man as a reasonable soul and body. And I guess uh, for a long time I had always thought that having the human nature was just the body and that the Son of God, the divine part, was the soul part. Um, but after studying all these things, thinking about it more, it's not true. So it, it is part of human nature to have a soul. And so it's important that the Son of God took on a human soul because he's also rescuing our souls. He's not just re redeeming our bodies, but he's redeeming our souls by having a perfect soul, a pure soul. 
Uh, so it was fully human, like ours in every way, without except for sin. Um, and the Son of God took on a human nature of body and soul. Okay, I think I think that's where we'll stop with the Chalcedonian Creed. Um, so remember, even if all this sounds like technicalities to you, remember that these are ways of trying to explain biblically what is the core of the gospel. Remember last week the, that John Owen says, this is the glory of the church, the glory of the church, how these two natures could be united in one person, Jesus Christ. And so, even if you don't fully grasp it, and of course, none of us are going to fully grasp it, I hope that at the very least, this concept of one person and two natures, I hope that we can have that drilled into your head. So that if someone on a survey asks you, <laughs> who is Jesus? You can just say, one person, two natures. One person, two natures. Not two persons, not one nature. One person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has a divine and human nature. All right, well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and how through your spirit you reveal yourself uh, as we did not see Jesus in the flesh, and yet uh, through the apostles you and through your word you have uh, preserved the truth about him for us, for us to believe. We pray that you'd help us to grow in understanding, help us to art accurately articulate, help us to be able to teach and to um, speak of Christ as we proclaim the gospel to other people, people who do not know Christ. Help us to explain him truthfully as the God-man. Uh, we thank you that he came down. The Son of God added a human nature for our salvation. And we pray that you would help us to worship him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.